Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast's mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and as you've heard already in our previous episodes, we are traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. On this episode, I am joined again by Jessica Storzczak and by Dr. Cindy McCreary, and we're going to hear more about queenship and empire, looking this time at Elizabeth II. Jess is a historian of monarchy focusing on the 19th and 20th centuries. Her main research topics include the Canadian monarchy, royal tours, and representations of the monarchy in the press. She also works for the news site Royal Central and has a website that focuses on making history and culture broadly accessible. And you can find that website at anhistorianabouttown.com. We also have Dr. Cindy McCreary, who is joining us to talk again about Elizabeth II. She's currently at the University of Sydney and specializes in visual and material culture, particularly as it relates to British Empire and British royalty. So thank you both very much for coming on. I'm really excited to have a chat with you both. Thank you for having us, Johanna. Thank you. So let's dive right in. So the first question that I have for you, and we'll start with Jess, is what got you interested in queenship, especially in the idea of queenship and that relationship with the British Empire? So I was born in the late 80s, and I feel like this answer will probably be common to many people. I, When I was about 10, I started reading the Royal Diaries series, which are a young adult series where it looks at a different female royal, usually in their teen years. Um, and they have all sorts of royals from across uh, the globe in different time periods. So that got me interested really young. And then when I went to university, I did uh, both my undergraduate degrees in history, the university I went to was more, I'll say, left-leaning in academics. And so I was kind of steered away um, from studying monarchy and into different areas. And then I actually did my master's in early Irish history, which is very different. And then after my master's, I knew I wanted to keep researching and I kept coming back to modern monarchy. Um, and I work at a university as uh, an administrative staff member. And so I have access to fantastic resources. And I started looking at the modern monarchy due to things in our collection. And I've just stuck with it, especially Elizabeth II. There's so much to research that there's really no lack of sources and there's no lack of topics. No, somehow monarchy sucks you in and then never lets you out again. <laughs> exactly. And how about you, Cindy? What got you interested in the, the two topics? Well, if you go back a few more decades than Jess, um, you find someone who, uh, as a very young undergraduate in, in the US, um, went to London 
um, and was just really blown away by an exhibition at the Tate on Ho William Hogarth, uh, Manners and Morals. Mm -hmm. um, and it really was a light bulb moment for me that, and for me, visual culture, and in this case, it's the 18th century. For those of you listening who are Tudor experts, I'm not that far away originally in my research area. Um, and 18th century visual culture cartoons of women in particular really grabbed me. And while in my thesis, I was actually focusing more on aristocratic women like Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, as well as ordinary women, unknown women, prostitutes, for example, I was, of course, as, as anyone would, looking at that material, really struck by how much attention was paid by caricatures like Gilray and Rawlinson to members of the rich royal family. Um, but it was later, I think, um, that I became interested in monarchy in particular. Um, and I've sort of moved forward in time. I'm now really looking at the 19th century. And I guess my my main area of interest is, is monarchy and colonialism. And, you know, what does it mean um, for people in, for example, Australia and, and other parts of the British Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries to have the British monarch as head of state? How does that affect how they feel about themselves? And of course, for much of the period we're talking about, the 19th and 20th centuries, we're talking about two queens. We're talking about Victoria uh, and then Elizabeth. Um, although there are also other important queens like Queen Mary in the early part of the 20th century. So I guess for me, it's, it's kind of started with visual culture, um, but but really now I think I'm interested more broadly in in, in monarchy and, and queens are a really important part of that. Yes, absolutely. We've been looking kind of mostly at queen regnants, but as you've pointed out, we also have a whole host of queen consorts um, and they play kind of a, a different, but an equally interesting and I, I would argue kind of an unequally influential role even if they aren't crowned in their own right as uh, a sole queen so i'm absolutely thrilled um as kind of our listeners have hopefully picked up from the introduction we have someone in canada and we have someone in australia um, so it's great to get kind of that breadth of kind of britain and how they deal with both sides of the world and so I guess that that brings us, we know what's got you into queenship. And so what are you currently working on? Jess, we'll start with you again. So I've currently got two different streams of research. Uh, so my, I guess, lesser related, but I, I'm also a ballet dancer. So I'm looking at portrayals of queenship in ballet because there are a number of historic queens who are portrayed in ballet. We have a lot of queens that don't have historic counterparts, but there are also a lot of queens like Queen Victoria is the Northern Ballet created Victoria. Um, we have the Empress of Russia and Anastasia. So I'm looking at portrayals of queens on the stage and what that looks like uh, in ballet specifically. And then my other research project is I'm looking at tours to Canada from 1901 to 1977. So I'm going really from the end of Victoria's reign through to the Silver Jubilee of Elizabeth II, just to kind of put a finite end date on it. And I'm looking at how those tours shift, how they actually, we see duration and what they're doing change, but also how they interact with different groups while they're on those tours and what, how, how they look different throughout time, because they certainly change from when uh, the future George V and Mary 
come on a tour in the early 20th century to when the royal family is carrying out their Silver Jubilee tours in 1977. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to look at there, but it is fascinating so far. Absolutely. And I love how you're working on kind of two very different topics, but they each thread into this idea of queenship and what it looks like and how it's understood. And I think that's something that will hopefully <laughs> engage a lot of people is that queenship isn't just historical. It's something that we are obviously still talking about today, um, but something that we're still interpreting and, and trying to understand even better. I think that especially now that we have another uh, queen consort again, because it's been so long that we have had one, um, we, I think a lot more questions are coming up and the collective memory doesn't really remember a queen consort. Everyone remembers Elizabeth as the queen mother rather than queen consort. And she did fulfill that role for quite some time before, but no one, most people alive don't have memories of that. So I'm finding a lot of interesting questions in my news work and just general reporting and discussion, discussion now and how people view Camilla's role now it is fascinating and I think people don't necessarily the general public doesn't necessarily understand how historic that discussion actually is yeah yeah and that this this role of a queen consort goes back centuries and it goes back you know thousands of years we might not call it a queen consort but this idea is is not new we just happen to have a new face and a new name in that position now mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and it's it's just always so interesting to hear what what new research is happening so Cindy how about you what is what are your current project or projects yeah so first I just want to say just um, building on what Jess said and I think she's absolutely right about the importance of having another look at at uh, consorts um, and just 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 to plug a, a new publication which just arrived in my inbox ye yesterday which I'm sure some of you are all familiar with which is the new um, volume in the Queenship and Power series uh, Palgrave Macmillan um, the volume on Hanoverian and Windsor consorts um, uh, and I do have a little piece in there but but more importantly there is a lot of discussion um, I think now, as Jess says, on the importance of, of revisiting consorts. And I think that's a really fruitful area of research. Um, and of course, not just in the British monarchy, but but more generally. Um, but just to answer your, your question, Joanna, um, so I am my, my sort of main big project, which I've been working on far too long, but which is which is stumbling to a conclusion, is a, is a book, um, a monograph on Queen Victoria's second son, Prince Alfred, called Navigating Empire. And it's called that because he was a naval officer who travels around the world, um, and in particular the British Empire, um, from 1867 to 1871. Now, in the course of that journey, what I've become really interested in is his engagement with other queens, and in particular in the Pacific, he meets um, a former queen, so this is the Dowager Queen, Queen Emma, and he meets in Tahiti um, Pomare IV, who's a queen in Tahiti, which is then a French protectorate, and Hawaii at that point is still an independent kingdom. Um, and now while that's just going to be one chapter of the book, I am getting more interested in thinking about how in the 19th century, um, queens in the Pacific and other areas are responding to the British Empire. And in particular, in the case of 
uh, Tahiti and Hawaii, using a particular relationship with the British royal family to negotiate and to assert the sovereignty of their own um, dynasties and indeed of their own rule at what is a very difficult moment um, for those kingdoms those areas because of not just the encroachment of British imperialism, but other Western imperial powers in the Pacific, um, like the Americans, the Germans, um, the, the, the Russians. So I think that really looking at queenship is is interesting, not just for what it tells us about the British Empire per se, but it also is interesting for thinking about the, the kind of broader political um, and imperial challenges of the late 19th century um, a, a, across the world. And I mean, that's just one example. So I guess a future project for me, and this would obviously be something I'd want to work on with a bunch of people who are experts in this area, is how do female rulers in places like not just Hawaii or Tahiti, but also um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, how are they negotiating their own position vis-a-vis -vis, um, the British Empire and specifically vis-a-vis -vis Queen Victoria? Because I, I think that's uh, really important. Um, the other thing I'm working on is uh, last year I hosted a conference at Sydney University on Australian responses to the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Um, now the timing of that conference took place just around the time of the Platinum Jubilee and before the passing of Her Majesty and I think it's really not interesting now to kind of take a moment to reflect on where Australians are now responding to that point that Jess made about this is something that's still ongoing but also thinking about how historically Australians have have thought of and responded to to Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly fascinating as as you've pointed out that we often think kind of when we're we're naming queens, often the mind, at least in this part, I say this part of the world in the UK, it often goes to you know well I can name maybe the queens regnant that England and. I'm going to say primarily England, um, but then Scotland, once Scotland joins um, and once we have Britain, but that there are also queens in their own right in so many other countries that Britain is dealing with on a regular basis. And that these queens don't get shouted about, I think, as much in the, the popular sphere as they should be, because they're incredible women who are working again with incredible women and I think that that often gets shifted out of focus and so I'm I'm glad it's coming back into focus now with what you're doing and so kind of we've we've touched on and I think both of your projects really reflect this idea of approaching history from different perspectives and approaching queenship based on geography, geographically where you are, um, and as we all do, what interests us. And so one of the questions that's be, being asked to all of my guests is how your own position as kind of white female scholars affects how you, you study queenship and how you kind of study and understand and interpret um, these these questions of empire. Uh, so again, Jess, I'll I'll let you take this kind of tricky question first um, to to kind of so, talk about how, how your perspective fits in. So I will say uh, in Canada, and I as I'm sure many other Commonwealth nations, we are very aware of 
the complicated history that colonialism has with Indigenous groups and Indigenous groups historically. Um, and interestingly, um, in Canada, I, I live in Manitoba, which is the, the province in the middle of Canada, if you're looking at a map. And on Canada Day 2021, we actually had, there was a march um, for uh, the lost children, essentially children who were put in residential schools, Indigenous children put in residential schools and who died there. And uh, mass graves are being found at for the sites of former residential schools. And there was a very large peaceful protest. And one of the things that happened is we had a very large statue of Queen Victoria outside of our provincial legislative building. And it was covered in red and orange handprints, which is kind of the, the symbol of the um, movement here. And then Victoria's statue was beheaded and it was pulled down. And also the uh, statue at the Lieutenant Governor's house of Elizabeth II was also pulled down, but it was not really damaged as much and it went back up. Um, so here in Manitoba specifically, you can't really escape it. And I think that's a good thing. Um, for quite some time, the empire has long been assumed to be this great thing that quote unquote civilized people. And we're now, I think, really being forced to look at that and say, did it? Like, were we quote unquote civilizing people or was this relationship not as positive as once assumed? And I'm also, again, working at a university um, with a large indigenous studies department and that um, comes out in our own daily work, um, no matter what you're doing at the university. I am fortunate that I've been able to take um, Indigenous education classes through my work. Um, but I think in terms of my own research, uh, I have found it fascinating looking specifically at tours and what interactions with Indigenous groups looks like from 1901 to 1977. And I actually plan on looking forward in time, but looking at how different those interactions go on tour and how it's written about in the press and how people remember it. Because um, I'm not sure if listeners will know this, but uh, indigenous treaties were not signed with the Canadian government. They were signed directly with the monarch. So indigenous, indigenous communities have uh, a more direct link with the crown specifically. So it's not a straightforward answer as indigenous groups all hate the monarch. A lot of them have very complex um, relationships and feelings about the monarchy because they feel directly connected to it still. So that's very present in my work. And I think that's a good thing. I think that I've noticed it less from scholars in Britain. And I would guess it might be because it's not ever present. Like I see the remnants of it daily um, in work and in my personal life. Um, but if you're in Britain, you're probably not faced with it so often, but it, it a hundred percent affects how I uh, study queenship and how I uh, interpret what I'm, what I'm finding. And I think that's, that's such a, a good point to make is I think the the thing that stands out for me is I'm going to mention the book. Um, when Prince Harry's book came out, I think it was the, the same day or maybe the day after there had just been the, I hesitate to call it a discovery, 
um, because Indigenous people knew that there were graves. Um, I guess the the acknowledgement by settlers that there were a new set of graves that had been acknowledged by white settlers of Indigenous school children. And that's something that I would have thought would have hit international news. But the top headline that day was Prince Harry's book is out. And so these kind of two perspectives of kind of the the scandal and kind of interest of monarchy today, but also this question of how does the monarchy interact with its its subjects uh, and with those who are in this case probably wrongly under their control um, and it it does make it a really difficult question and something that um, I'm I'm sure Cindy would agree we are very used to kind of in, in Canada opening with this is the territory that we are speaking on acknowledging that this is this is not land that that we as settlers have asked permission to be on. We've arrived and said, this is ours. You may continue to use it in this specific way. And that's, yeah. that's an, an incredible influence on how we work. And like I, like I said, working as a staff member, we have land acknowledgements at pretty every much meet, every meeting we have on campus. Um, and like I said, Manitoba does have a very large indigenous um, presence and population so I'm not sure if you go to other Canadian provinces you might experience it differently but it absolutely plays into it and also the fact that Canada is a separate monarchy that's what I deal a lot with right now with what I'm speaking publicly is that Canada is its own monarchy and so that relationship is also different and I'm sure also for Australia New Zealand etc that um, a lot of people just assume, oh, it's the British monarchy, but it is more complex with that, and especially with Indigenous groups. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's very complex, um, and so kind of wondering, Cindy, how does that play into kind of how how you understand queenship and this relationship? Absolutely, I, I think I want to just sort of um, extend a lot of what Jess has said. Um, Although the the situation in Canada and Australia are not the same, and you know, as, as she notes, we we are, we are uh, uh, we are the Australian monarchy here, not the Canadian monarchy or the British monarchy. Um, I mean, for example, in, in many ways, things that this conversation in Australia is um, perhaps even more urgent, but also less well developed in Australia than I think it is in Canada. Um, so, for example, there are no treaties with Indigenous people um, and the British monarchy, um, and it is a, a source of in, increasing urgency um, and anger that that's not the case. Um, you may know that one of the big, the biggest issue at the moment facing the government in Australia is trying to bring an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which, which would mean having a permanent, really an advisory body that would um, consult with Indigenous um, people, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, um, to make sure that their views are heard. Now, it's not... Um, it doesn't give them a veto. It, it it's actually um, quite a modest proposal, but it is it is already um, causing the government a lot of problems because there is uncertainty about what it really means. In Australia, we do not have a tradition of many amendments to our constitution, which which was um, first uh, you know rolled out when we became independent a federation in 1901. Um, so it's rare for us to have major interventions. Um, and it's really in very recent history that Aboriginal people have been fully counted 
in Australian society. There was a referendum in 1967 um, to enable Australian Aboriginal people to be fully counted, to be full citizens. That's very recent history. Um, so in many ways, we are, I think, behind in the kind of conversations that are going on in Canada and elsewhere. Having said that, um, I also want to echo Jess's point about the issue of land. It is the case, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't start, but I would normally start. Yeah. Um, a meeting by saying, I'm coming to you from Gadigal land and I pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. And as Jess said, that is a very common way for us at our university and, and elsewhere to start meetings. On the other hand, it is also complicated, as Jess also notes for Canada, by the fact that Indigenous people in Australia have complex responses to the Crown. It is the case that in the 19th and the 20th century, um, it, some Indigenous groups actually saw the British monarchy and the British monarch as being a third way between the you know, Indigenous groups and what were often very hostile as colonial um, administrations and settler communities. Um, and it is the case that when Elizabeth first visits Australia um, in 1954, she does ask at points in her tour, you know, where are Indigenous populations? Why are they being brought to me? Why am I not going to see them? Um, and that's been a, a long running issue in royal tours. Um, you know, what is shown to the monarch and what is not shown or what is sort of tidied up? For the, for the monarch size. So, sorry, this is a rather long-winded way of saying that, yes, these issues are absolutely vital in Australia as well, and we are grappling with them um, as, as we speak. Um, in terms of my own research, I, I must say that I have done more research on, on monarchies in other um, communities, like in the Pacific, than in Australia itself. But I do think that absolutely going forward, we absolutely have to reflect on how Indigenous Australians and Torres Strait Islanders um, understand the Queen because that and, and monarchy that is absolutely central to to us as historians. Yeah, and that it's I mean as as you both pointed out so succinctly uh, is that it it is an ongoing issue and it's not something. In some ways, there are frustrations that I have working in the early modern period, but there is also a sort of hidden blessing that most of the time we know how things end. We know how wars end. We know how treaties end. Um, and that's that's not the case if this is ongoing history. And, and I think that's uh, a really fascinating and a, a really insightful part into queenship is that it it is still going. It is still something that we are are understanding and are trying to interpret to the best of our abilities. And so kind of building on these ideas, I think we've touched on a little bit um, with both of my guests today, um, but wanting to dig a little bit further, Jess, into the relationship that Elizabeth II had to Canada and how kind of she personally, professionally, how she sees that relationship and kind of performs and acts in that relationship so I think she was set up from really childhood to have a fairly positive relationship with Canada during the second world war although her parents said no they didn't want the girls to leave um, there was a property set up in I believe it was in BC for Elizabeth and Margaret to go to if they were not able to stay in England during the war. We obviously know they stayed at Windsor because their parents didn't want them to leave, but the plan was if we need to, they can evacuate to Canada. So I think that kind of always set it up as 
a somewhat safe haven. Um, but she came on her first tour uh, with Philip when she was still Princess Elizabeth. And it was a very long tour because back then they did five-week tours instead of these three to four day quick jumps we now see but Elizabeth visited Canada more than any of her other commonwealth realms she visited over 20 times uh officially and had other unofficial visits where she was there more on personal business also although we all are speaking about Elizabeth Philip also had a very close relationship with Canada and visited more often than Elizabeth did so I will say both uh, both there in that relationship uh, were close with Canada. I think that Elizabeth, she, well, her father, George VI, was the first monarch who had, who started his reign with these separate thrones, as we see after the statute of Westminster. Really, I always look at it as George, he, he has the second world war to deal with that pretty much comes at the beginning of his reign. So, He's not quite focusing so much on that, understandably. So Elizabeth is really the first one to grapple with what do these separate thrones look like? How do I, how does it work as me as Queen of Canada versus no longer being Queen of the British Empire, which happens to include Canada? Um, And so we do actually, interestingly, we periodically see her acting specifically as Queen of Canada. For example, when the St. Lawrence Seaway was opened in the late 1950s, which if you don't know, is like a seaway that's out of Canada and the U.S. that's very important for trade um, and shipping things. Uh, she opened that and she was there as Queen of Canada, not as Queen of the U.K., And she also has represented Canada as Queen of Canada uh, when it comes to World War II um, remembrance ceremonies, uh, especially in France, because Canada took part in several uh, Canadian troops took part in many um, crucial battles like Vimy Ridge is one of the big ones that we always talk about here in Canada. So she does have a very close, she had a very close, and I would say fairly warm relationship with Canada. We know she frequently um, talked with her Canadian prime ministers and had good relationships with them for the most part, obviously not speaking weekly like she is with her UK prime minister, but she is, um, she does, she did have a close relationship and I think it's also interesting to look at Elizabeth's relationship to the Commonwealth. And I think the Commonwealth still is very important to the British monarchy. Again, it's one of those things that I don't know that it's particularly important to a lot of people in Britain, especially if they don't have ties to Commonwealth countries themselves. But I think it is very important to the monarch, especially Elizabeth II. It, um, she... I believe it was in the 1970s, the UK prime minister did not want her to attend the Commonwealth meeting for political reasons. So she then decided to attend as the Queen of Canada because Canada also obviously a member of the Commonwealth. So she was there uh, with Pierre Elliott Trudeau as Queen of Canada. So she, I think she was very intelligent about balancing her, um, shall we say, obligations um, to her different thrones, or at least in regards to Canada, I can't speak to the other um, Commonwealth realms, but she certainly 
I would say, quote unquote, made time for Canada. And every time she came here, she remarked about how she felt like she was home. Um, and she always received, had quite a warm reception. I personally saw her when she came for the Golden Jubilee in 2002 and just the crowds of people. It was re remarkable. I'd never seen it. Um, and I think that we are going to see a different reaction whenever Charles and Camilla visit. Unfortunately, their last visits were during COVID. So that's a very different situation that I don't think can be compared to a regular visit. But I think Elizabeth specifically had a fantastic relationship with Canada and including indigenous groups. I would say she was very aware of them. It's difficult to know thus far in my research, less of her personal views because we don't know a lot about Elizabeth's personal views. Maybe we will in the future if documents <laughs> when they're made accessible, but um, she is aware of those relationships and the complexity of them. And she does make visiting indigenous groups a priority. Like it is rare to see a visit where she isn't meeting with them. And like in Australia, she does start going to their communities. We see her in Manitoba in my province. She flew up to um, Thompson, which is a, ooh, a good eight hour drive from our main city. It's quite far north. And she went there to see um, Northern communities and Northern indigenous communities. So I think she is very aware of it. However, in terms of Canada, the British government usually is involved. Like we, we don't see Elizabeth never made an apology for residential schools. I suspect part of that will come down to the British government has to be okay with that apology coming. So that's a trickier relationship to discern her relationship to Indigenous Canadians. But overall, I would say she had a very warm relationship with Canada. Yeah, and it's it's one that I think for many people in Commonwealth countries, she is the only monarch we either have known or have very clear memories of. And I mm -hmm. think that kind of really defines how we remember her and that we don't quite have that distanced enough view to be able to say this was maybe the personal opinion um, and that this is a relationship that we're still figuring out and that that this is a, an ongoing relationship um, even though obviously she's she's not there anymore but this is still a relationship that that I think the monarchy and Canada are coming to grips with and will of course see a shift as we have a new monarch. It will, it will be interesting to see. I mean, obviously no tours have been announced. I suspect that from now until the coronation, we won't see any major tours announced for Charles and Camilla. I would guess that the Prince and Princess of Wales might um, do some visits, but I think after the coronation, we will see some Commonwealth visits announced and that will be very interesting to see how they're received in the different realms. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the last wave of tours. I remember uh, many 
Canadian royal watchers being very upset that we were not one of the first to have a tour announced. Um, and so this, obviously, not all Canadians, um, but there's there's still this sense that we are looking of, why don't you like us anymore? Why don't you want to come visit us? Uh, and this this sense that there there is still that close relationship. And when there aren't tours or when there aren't opportunities for that visible connection, there gets to be this discussion of, you know, is the monarchy changing? Are we changing? Is the relationship changing? And I, I would assume, can I guess, that this is something that's hopefully not just happening with Canada, but that it's a, a question of how this relationship is evolving as well in Australia and in other Commonwealth countries. Wondering if, if you could speak to that, Cindy. Yeah, absolutely, Johanna. I, I think that this relationship of Elizabeth II with Australia, I think there are a lot of similarities with the relationship that Jess was describing um, in relation to Canada, but but also some differences. Um, if I can just suggest, you know, somewhat facetiously, but only half joking that, you know, I think this also links to sort of Australia's broader um, role in the British and that public imagination. It, it, you know, I think in many ways, Australians and Australia are seen in, in somewhat still of a bit of a cartoon fashion. We are, if you will, the kind of the bad boys of, 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 the, of the Commonwealth um, and the people who, you know, you can never really be quite sure that you can trust them at a dinner party um, in terms of what they might say. Um, I think that um, Elizabeth's first visit to Australia, she, she and Philip were supposed to come to Australia um, on the tour um, in 1952, uh, when, of course, while at, in um, Kenya, she received the news of George VI's death. And so, of course, um, I said, you know, uh, succeeded to the throne and, and went straight back to London. So the first visit to Australia then is postponed and happens uh, after the coronation. And, and it's part of a, a really large six month visit of many parts. Of, of the Commonwealth. And she comes to Australia in 1954. And as a number of Australian historians have pointed out, this was a defining moment in post-war Australian history. Something like three quarters of the then quite small population of 7 million, but three quarters of the population actually came out in person to line the streets of cities and towns and small communities um, in what was often very hot summer weather, because uh, it happened in our Southern Hemisphere summer, uh, January, February. Um, and if you speak to Australians of that generation who are now uh, senior people, uh, for many of them, that was a defining moment of their childhood. Um, you know, the, the mother of a, of a friend of mine remembers as a small girl being kind of pushed forward to the front of the crowd lining the street to catch a glimpse of the Queen. Um, and that moment will stay with her. So for many older Australians, and of course, at that time, Australia was, in addition to our Indigenous community, primarily populated by Anglo-Celtic um descendants of, of settlers that was a really important moment and for the for particularly for older women it remains a very important part of their family history their personal history but australia today like canada like britain is a very different place and we now have according to demographers we are an asian nation in the sense that more australians are born of asian heritage than european heritage for australians today there's a very different relationship with the British monarchy. Um, and I think towards the end of her reign, there was a different relationship with the Queen. There was still a great sense of, um, I think, admiration, respect, um, and indeed for many Australians, love and, and uh, admiration. But for others, I think there was more of a sense of a disconnect, 
as the Queen did not visit Australia as many times as Canada, and that makes perfect sense uh, when you think of the distance. She still came 16 times, which is still pretty remarkable, but like Canada, it was Philip actually who came to Australia more often. Um, he came both with the Queen but also on his own, and he was here for some important um moments in our history as well. For example, in 1956, he opened the Melbourne Olympics. Um, uh, so I think that it's really for Australians more a sense of the British royal family as a whole. I think in recent decades as well, um, the visits of Diana to Australia need to be mentioned. She was and remains, I think, for many Australians, an incredibly important icon. Um, and I think that her visits um, were very profound and had a big impact on on people. And more recently, the visits of the now Prince and Princess of Wales, Kate and William, and, and also um, Harry and Meghan, um, were also influential, particularly for younger Australians and for Australians uh, who are not of, of white background. I think the visit of Meghan was very important in making them feel a connection to what they then saw as the kind of modern face of, of the British monarchy. Um, so I guess it's it's a complex relationship, um, even as far back as the first British royal tour of Australia in 1867 with Prince Alfred, who I'm looking at, this is Queen Victoria's second son. He was nervous about the way that the Australian press reported on him. And since that time, that has been an ongoing uh, theme that the Australian press, you know, can't be trusted. You know, they're going to make up terrible stories about, you know, um, members of the, the British monarchy or the royal family. Um, as well, we have another moment in our political history that for many Australians is a source of ongoing anger, and that is the circumstances around the dismissal of our Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, in 1972, where the Queen's representative in Australia, the Governor General, Sir John Kerr, dismissed the Prime Minister. Um, and just recently, um, uh, one of our his uh, Australian historians, Jenny Hocking, has written about the palace letters and, and talked about the role that the Queen's private secretary, Sir Martin Charters, had in that episode. Um, so just to, to wind up here, um, I think this is a complex relationship. I think on the whole, it's a very positive one. And I think the Queen was very fond of Australia. But I don't want to suggest that there was the same sense of perhaps closeness either geographically or emotionally, as as perhaps the Queen had with with Canada and with with Canadians. Uh, and I, I think... also just wanted to jump in there because that reminded me, I think one other factor that a lot of, um, I'll say now middle-aged Canadians, uh, part of the closeness that they would have with Elizabeth was um, when our constitution was signed in 1982, uh, she was there and she signed it as monarch, not the governor general. She actually came to Canada. So that was a massive political moment and took Canada since 1931, took how many years for us to figure out what we wanted our constitution to look like. And she, at least when you look at the images and the iconography of that moment, and Joe, I'm sure you can probably attest to the photos and videos you've seen, Elizabeth is front and center in that major Canadian political moment. Um, so, and I was born in 89. So it predates me a little bit, but I still have very clear um, images in my head of it. And I think that that constitution in 1982 also plays into it. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're still taught kind of the years we need to know are, you know, Magna Carta, 1215, Canadian kind of independence. We get Confederation in 1867, and then we get our Constitution back. <laughs> um, yep. And and I think it's, it's, as you both said, it's such a complex relationship. And I think, as Cindy points out, just logistically, 
it is a lot further from Britain. <laughs> Having looked at kind of holidays, <laughs> it's almost double, maybe triple the time in an airplane to get from London to Australia than it is to get London to kind of the most populated bits of Canada. And so, I mean, logistically, traveling to Australia 16 times is incredible in someone's lifetime. Um, and to have that as the kind of unofficial position. And I think kind of understandably, it's it's interesting to see how we have these kind of two completely different relationships. And that it's not, I think as you you both pointed out, it's not kind of, oh, well, that's the British monarch out there. We don't really have anything to do with them that there's this different connection to different places and that that relationship is very much influenced by the specific group of people and the specific circumstances um, and that, that that changes and that the political environment also changes that. Um, and I will have to look more into this dismissal i had not heard of this before um but yes, I and imagine... i just realized joanna i just got the day, the year wrong which is just like so embarrassing it wasn't 1972 it was 1975 <laughs> so that may be why you haven't heard of the 1972 dismissal because there was not one <laughs> i'd never heard of the 1975 one either <laughs> yeah it's getting a lot of attention in um australian discussions because uh and this may be something we want to move on to next but um as Australians think about with the new monarch, uh, the new reign, Australia's constitutional future, the Australian Republican movement is, of course, going to make as much capital as it can about the dismissal mm -hmm. of, uh, of of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam and what that may suggest about Australia's position as, as a Commonwealth realm and, you know, how if we'd only had our own head of state, you know, that could that could never have happened. Yeah, and it, it makes it so complicated. You think they're dismissing a prime minister in Australia and in Canada, we have a prime minister who is pirouetting behind the queen on an official visit. Like what, yeah. what a difference thing her of, you know, for all intents and purposes, I probably would have fired Trudeau <laughs> for just the, the spontaneity. And yet that's the treatment Australia gets. Um, I think that's. I, I should just jump in there and say that in 1954, when Elizabeth visits for the first time, our then Prime Minister Robert Menzies was absolutely, um, uh, just absolutely obsessed with the Queen, um, and indeed made himself look ridiculous, um, at least in the eyes of many Australians, by his slavish, um, sort of chivalry to her. Um, so it, we haven't all had that sort of, you know, bullshit labor <laughs> prime ministers like Gulf Whitlam. We've, we've had our fair share of, of liberal, which for us is conservative, um, prime ministers are absolutely in thrall of, of the queen. I just, I love the stories of kind of those personal moments. Um, but definitely I'm going to go away and, and do some more reading about 1975. And so I think you've, you've both touched on this again, this idea of, where where is the monarchy going now um kind of queenship adjacent where where is the monarchy kind of going either in these countries or in the commonwealth more broadly and how do we see the relationship with kind of these former colonies former dominions 
now Commonwealth, how do we see those countries influencing the monarch? Um, so kind of that reciprocal relationship of where's the monarchy going and how how are these countries still influencing the monarchy back when they're in Windsor Castle, for example? Jess, why don't why don't you take us away with that first? I I am quite interested to see where Charles goes. We know that he has been willing to be more outwardly political than his mother, but he was as Prince of Wales, not as King. So it's not quite the same, but we we know more about Charles personally um, mm. and about his political leanings. So I am interested to see, I know that Charles has expressed that if countries want to leave uh, the Commonwealth or no longer want to have uh, the monarch as their head of state, he will not stand in their way and he will offer the hand of friendship still. In terms of Canada, there are some people saying, mm, should we get rid of this distant monarch? However, we have a very specific process for changing the constitution and how many provinces and how much of the population need to be on board with abolishing it. And if you've studied Canadian politics at all and understand uh, the weight that Quebec, our mainly Francophone province, um, carries and how much they can do or not do depending on their choices. Um, I don't see the monarchy being abolished in Canada in the near future. And I think part of that is coming back to the UK. I think we've seen how poorly Brexit has played out because you can't really have a question of let's make this big change, but not suggest how it'll go after. So in Canada, we would need to figure out what, what system will replace it? What will that look like? And to get Canada at a place where the majority of people are agreeing on a future system, I, I don't think that will come soon. And the other thing is just, this, this may sound stupid to people, but when you hear the word Republican here in Canada, we often think of Republicans in the States. We don't think of Republican on the political spectrum just as a role, but we think of the Republican Party in the U.S. So to say we want to be Republican, that's going to have a very different meaning here in Canada than perhaps it would elsewhere in the Commonwealth. And even hearing like there is the, um, the group Republic in the U.K. that's campaigning to abolish the monarchy. And every time I see it, I just have this picture of the GOP, which is not at all accurate. They're not in the U.S. at all, obviously, <laughs> but I just instinctively hear Republican, Republican, and think of Republicans in the U.S., which is a very specific political stance. Whether or not you agree with it, it is a very specific political stance. So I think, and Canada, I, I won't get into it. That's a, a whole, someone's entire, it's many people's entire career, the complex relationship that Canada has with the U.S. and how that affects our role with the monarchy and how much we identify with the monarchy because we are not our Southern brethren who mm. decided to dump the tea and get rid of it. Um, mm. So I, in terms of Canada, I, I'll be interested to see where we head. I think Charles and Camilla will probably continue on as normal. Uh, William and Catherine are very well received here. We were their first tour 
uh, right after they got married. And it was kind of Catherine's introduction to her royal life. And it went very well. Uh, they've come back several times since. We have somewhat of a less positive relationship with Harry and Meghan because they kind of just escaped here and uh, when they mm. decided to step back from royal life. And then it was, no, actually, never mind. So we kind of, many people here feel kind of slighted that we were just kind of a side stop. Um, and also very complex. COVID was related. There was lots of things at play there. But it felt like we were just kind of a vacation home and we happened to be convenient um, before they moved on to the next step. So Harry and Megan, we have a, a different relationship. I wouldn't say people dislike them here. It's not kind of like the UK, but Kat, Catherine and William are very well received. Charles and Camilla, eh, I, people are more indifferent. It's more of a, what would we, what would we get to? Where would we end up? And is it worth it to change? We're not at that point yet. Yeah, there's there's not been that final kind of push of, you know, this is this is the final breaking point. Mm. I, that that's interesting have to hear your perspective as as someone who knows, I mean, you both know a lot more than me about this relationship. And so to hear kind of where you think that will be going in the next in a few years and decades. And so what about Australia I think interesting to point out kind of that that difference that not even the same royal couples are kind of the top choice in in both these countries and so what do you think the monarchy is going to look like in Australia yes Jenna well look I, I agree with Jess and I think there are a lot of similarities in um, the situation in Australia and in particular um She's absolutely right that the point in 1999, there was a refer referendum in Australia about becoming a republic and it failed less because more people were monarchists and wanted to keep Australia as a Commonwealth realm and more because the particular model for choosing a new head of state under a republic um, didn't, it, it was confusing, people didn't really understand it and therefore felt it was better to sort of keep the, you know, if it's not broke, why, what? Why fix it kind of thing. Um, and I think that still remains an issue because the, the new Australian choice model that the Australian Republican movement has put forward, and I should say that we may be more advanced in this discussion than in Canada. There is a campaign by the Australian Republican movement um, that is kind of relaunched after the, 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 um, the uh, accession of the new king. Um, and there is, um, I'd say, slowly but a growing momentum um, for having an open discussion about this. Now in Australia, we know that the current government has said that its priority in its first three-year term is to get an Indigenous voice to Parliament approved, um, so that at the very earliest, it would depend on the current Labour government being re-elected in 2025, um, having successfully introduced an Indigenous voice to Parliament, only then could a referendum on Australia becoming a republic take place. So there are a lot of ifs there. But were that to happen, I think, again, the issue of how Australians would choose a head of state is still um, an, a, a live issue. Um, at the moment, the model proposed by the Australian Republican movement is that each state and territory would uh, be able to nominate one individual candidate. Um, and then the uh, federal parliament would, would uh, be able to nominate three and then Australians would vote. There would need to be a clear majority of the population voting and also within the states and territories. And then legislation would have to be introduced into the federal parliament and that would have to pass by a clear majority. So just as in Canada, as, as Jess says, in Australia, there are a number of hurdles before this could come about. 
At the same time, I do think Australians are perhaps more open to this than in Canada. Um, and I think here we need to think about what's happening in the rest of the Commonwealth realms. In Australia, we do have a lot of attention paid to discussions in places like Jamaica, um, Antigua and Barbuda, the decision by Barbados to become a republic. That got a lot of attention here. And although there are incredibly important differences between those nations and Australia, for some Australians, that seems to be a pathway that may be um, a, a good one. Um, so my my guess would be that for Australia, it's not something that would happen anytime soon, but I could expect it happening in Australia well before Canada. I agree with Jess. I would say that Canada and New Zealand are probably two of the Commonwealth realms that will be last, uh, mm -hmm. if ever, um, in, in, the, in the line to become republics. I think Australia could go earlier, but I don't want to suggest that it would, would come immediately. But I think it's on the horizon. Um, just recently with the news about Prince Andrew possibly moving into Frogmore Cottage, I just was noticing comments in our Sydney local paper. And a lot of people were expressing frustration with the royal family in general and feeling that it was you know, a colossal waste of money and really had very little to do with modern Australia. Um, now, that's not a scientific sample, but I think the mood is changing here. Yeah, I would say just uh, the talk of money um, that reminded me because I was thinking more on my uh, the work I do reporting the discussion, understandably so in Britain about the monarchy is very much about the money spent on it. And it is quite a lot of money. So I understand that here in Canada, it always comes down to it's something tiny cents I believe I think it's less than a dollar per person we really only pay for them when they come here so the money isn't really a factor in our discussion if they started coming more often and we had a much higher bill perhaps it would but that that financial element that I've seen in different commonwealth nations doesn't really seem to appear in Canada interestingly and I don't know if it really is just we have lots of other political issues and monetary issues that we are grappling with right now, both provincially and federally. And so looking at less than a dollar per person per year just is not on our radar right now. Um, but yeah, that factor is there in other places that I find fascinating. But for Canadians, the money does it like no Canadian articles about the coronation have mentioned the very high costs associated with it. But in reading articles in Australia, New Zealand, oh, and I can't remember the third uh, Commonwealth realm, but they all mention the cost, but Canada doesn't, which is fascinating. I think you wanted to just, jump just, in there. Yeah, just when you said money, Jess, I was just re uh, reminded of something just happened very recently in Australia. And I think this is kind of, it says a lot about this current Labour government. They kind of slip stuff in. Um, we recently, the Reserve Bank of Australia, which has a decision, the right to do this, just decided that the new $5 note that is being developed will not have the monarch, namely Charles um, III's um, face on it, whereas Elizabeth was on that $5 note. Now, not always. She only came onto that $5 note in 1992. Um, she displaced a, a colonial era humanitarian, Caroline Chisholm, a British migrant. Um, so it's not the case that the Queen was always on the $5 note, but it was seen um, by monarchists in Australia as a kind of sneaky step by the government, because, of course, in fact, the Reserve Bank had gotten the government's approval to do this, um, that we were somehow already kind of moving away from our, our status as a Commonwealth realm. Um, and I think things like that are significant. You know, the idea that we would not have the monarch 
on our $5 note when that has certainly been something we've had for a very long time. We've always had the monarch on one of our notes um, is I think significant. Now the monarch will be on our coins, that Charles will be on our coins. Um, but I'd also just like to, to add that my understanding is that Australia produces those polymer banknotes, or at least we used to for Canada. So um, obviously we have no control over Canadian designs, but but for a while at least we were producing your your um, polymer banknotes. <laughs> yes, and I believe we make the coins because the Royal Mint is actually here, and I believe Australia may be one of the flags outside because no. we produce the. No, is it? No, we, we Australian Mint produces our coins. We also produce. Um, I just actually looked into this. Fascinating. Maybe you have the same thing in Canada, but the Australian Mint produces coins for a number of Pacific nations, including New Zealand, and we produce notes for a bunch of countries. Um, in the past, it was Canada, but we also uh, also other places not having any connection with Britain or the British Empire, like Thailand. Yes, it's, I've learned it is big, creating currency is big business. We do coins here in Winnipeg. That's our big thing. Um, but yes, we have, I think, 60, 65 different countries that we mint for here in Canada. And it's interesting. And here I was yeah. until a minute ago thinking that countries just made their own money. You learn yeah. something every day. <laughs> I don't think it's something that many countries want to maybe publicize, Johanna. <laughs> Fair enough. That is, we need to remember, Jeff and I, we have to keep Australia on board for many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been absolutely wonderful. I say I've learned one thing today. It's a lie. I've learned many new things today. Um, so I want to thank you both so much for coming on and for such uh, an incredibly insightful conversation um, on the, the complexities of queenship, the complexities of monarchy, and where that's potentially going in the future. Um, so I think that the last thing that I have to do is to say again, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. So thank you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you, us. Johanna. Yes, thank you. It's been yeah. a great pleasure meeting you, uh, Johanna and Jess. Yes, absolutely. Either I've talked to Jess a little bit more for different projects, but it's lovely to put Cindy the the face to the name, to the voice, to the research. Um, and it's absolutely wonderful. So thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of the Tudor's Dynasties Queenship series. And we're looking forward to coming back to you next time with a discussion on global monarchy with some members of the Team Queens project. So we look forward to see, or I guess to seeing, to hearing you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.